0: This morning, scripture comes from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. if you would have a seat and uh, let us pray over God's word this morning that he might bless it. God and Father, you indeed have spoken to us by your word. And uh, week in and week out, we acknowledge that not only by reading it publicly and expecting it to do something by uh, but by also uh, praising you because you have spoken. So Lord, we ask that you would uh, change our hearts by it, that you would use the power of the Spirit to illuminate your word for us this morning, that we would be uh, forever changed. We pray these mighty things, marvelous things, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, this morning, but we are also going to be in uh, Psalm chapter 18, and so you can kind of put uh, the little ribboning thing in your Bible in both places if you want to this morning. I am a uh, bivocational pastor, which means that uh, I go to work on a daily basis, but I also try to uh, have a lot of opportunities to uh, meet with our people. Uh, So that uh, normally relegates itself to coffee, which I dislike, uh, and then to uh, lunches, which I like very much. Uh, but this week, I had several meetings, and one of those uh, I, uh, I was having with a friend, and uh, he asked me, hey, how are you doing? I said, you know, things are pretty simple. I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. And uh, his response to me, I think, was, uh, was good and telling, but it was also hilarious. He said, uh, that's what I love about Christians. Christians uh, really are content in the mundane." Uh, not very ambitious people. And, uh, and I thought that that was very funny because I've never really thought of myself as particularly unambitious uh, or actually particularly content. I, if you know me very well, I'm not the most content person you could ever meet. But as he began to describe what he meant by it, I I began to see the wisdom in it and and agree with it uh, because ultimately what he was saying is is that uh, Christians can take what is mundane in the daily life and see it kind of wrapped up into kingdom purposes. And uh, Christians, although they might be ambitious in the sense that we might go and do things for the glory of God, are not typically after uh, fame, after the hypercars, after, uh, you know, enormous houses and uh, lots of recognition and things like that. And so I, uh, I started off a little offended, but then the more that I heard about it, I was like, yeah, of course, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. We are content in the mundane. Uh, we're not a particularly ambitious people the way that the world is ambitious. But the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that he was making an important distinction. There is an important distinction in all of this. Why was my initial reaction one of like a little bit of offense? It was because I felt like maybe I was being called weak or the people that I love being called weak. Uh, We don't much like weakness, but there is a distinction between uh, weakness and And meekness. And we're going to try to draw some of those distinctions and use it uh, in a useful way this morning. It's not because those two things are uh, completely different than one another, but because by drawing a distinction, we might come to know and understand something about God's might so meekness versus weakness, maybe you, even you, don't necessarily like to associate with either one of those things. So let's try to define what we mean by that, at least for the, our purposes this morning. Weakness is a lack of power, a lack of strength, a lack of energy. Weakness is liable to break. It is easily damaged. And so for our our purposes this morning, we're going to talk about weakness in a negative way. Now, there are plenty of scriptures that actually talk about weakness in a positive way. Uh, That is going to be what we're going to use more to define the idea of meekness this morning. Meekness is quietness. It's gentleness. It's a submissive spirit. It's what 1 Thessalonians might say to us, to aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs. From uh, our body in the last year, I've heard a lot of talking about weakness. In the last year, I've heard things uh, literally like these three uh, quotes uh, that sing in my mind. They really ring in my mind. I don't like to feel weak. That's what I've heard this, uh, this year. I've heard people describe their spouses or their friends as being weak in a negative way. I can't do this, I can't do this thing, I feel too weak and I hate feeling weak. I've seen these sentiments uh, really tied very closely to crises and depressions in our life. If our uh, previous generations had something of a midlife crisis, I see a lot of us 20- and 30-year-olds having like quarter-life crises. As, uh, as our years get longer and as we get somewhat more discontent, we have uh, higher aspirations and then maybe more uh, uh, meager kind of lives. We see this chasm kind of grow, and a lot of times we feel... Weak, we feel a little bit depressed, we feel as though there is something wrong with us because we haven't attained to some sort of level that we started out with. I've seen these sentiments kind of closely tied to these kinds of crises or depressive feelings. And, and it kind of feeds into what I would call kind of a, uh, a self-centered cycle. This self-centered cycle kind of starts with a self-focus and then kind of looks to elevate self and self-aggrandizement. But then once we've, uh, once we've lifted ourselves up, we become acutely aware of the ways that we actually are weak in and of ourselves because if we're trying to be mighty if we're lifting ourselves up, if we're trying to be strong in and of ourselves. The first thing that that's going to illuminate are all of the ways that we fail as human beings. And so we've gone from this self-centeredness to self-aggrandizement to also then uh, self-doubt and self-loathing, and that leads back to self-centeredness right where we began. There's almost just this cycle of self-centeredness that uh, is a part of many of our stories. I can tell you that it is a part of mine and leads me to depressive emotions as well. So here's what I want to think about this morning. I want to think about the human's propensity to think of us in terms of might and strength When we find that we are either weak or meek, as we've defined them this morning. And what I think that we find this morning, uh, not just in uh, the text here in Isaiah, but then also as we begin to explore God's word in Psalm 18, is that meek men need a mighty Messiah, Meek men actually need a mighty Messiah. And I don't mean this in terms of uh, men, like masculine. I mean human beings. Meek men need a mighty Messiah. So here's kind of the road that we're going to use to kind of get there this morning. The first thing we're going to do is explore Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to do that by talking about the coming king. The second place that we're going to go is we're going to go explore Psalm 18 and we're going to learn about the persecuted prince. And then finally, we're going to see what happens when meek meets might, when the meekness of man meets with the mightiness of God. So that's where we're headed this morning. But how do we take Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven? We read this kind of every year around the holidays. This, uh, to us, a uh, son is born uh, uh, this child is given. It's something that's familiar to us, but very rarely do we actually slow down to pay attention to these words. We're going to do that this morning, and we're going to ask the question, who is this talking about? What does it mean? How are we to take it? Now, as Jeff mentioned last week, Isaiah uh, is a book that primarily pronounces judgment on Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. It's, it's a, a book that's really difficult to read because uh, God is a jealous God. God's people are not obeying or worshiping or loving him as they ought. And so God is actually going to uh, disperse them. He's going to put them under a season of uh, judgment so that they might return to him. So it's, it's first of all proclaiming some sense of discipline on God's people. But then it is also going to be talking about a future hope, a coming king. And that's where we are in chapter 9. Verse 6 talks about this coming king. For to us a child is born. And what do we read about that child? We, we don't read that it is a, 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 a normal child. We learn that it's a government-shouldering, government-expanding child. So there's almost this paradox of like the innocence and smallness and meekness of a child partnered with the expectation that he will be shouldering the governments of the world, that his uh, government will be expanding to out to all things, that his might is very great. So what do we learn about this government-shouldering, government-increasing child? Is, is when we ask the question, who is this, some theologians might go to this and go, well, it's a person. In fact, many of our Hebrew friends would read this and they would say, well, it's, uh, it's got to be someone that's actually human, someone that came about. Is it David? So we can ask the question, is this David? That's a natural question to which we must respond, no, it is not David. Isaiah is writing after David, and then he, in verse uh, 7, actually talks about this child sitting on the throne of David. So if David hadn't already been around, then uh, we obviously couldn't have a child that's sitting on David's throne. 2 Samuel uh, says this in chapter 7, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. That's the promise that God is making uh, to David. I'm going to raise up your own flesh and blood, and he will build my house. He'll, be, he'll build the temple. So then we've got to ask ourselves, is this child with this ever-expanding government, is that Solomon, David's baby, his own flesh and blood? Is it Solomon? Well, verse 7 here in Isaiah says that uh, God is going to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Now, what's the problem there if we're talking about Solomon? Solomon was very wise. He was a relatively speaking good king, but justice and righteousness do not perfectly describe who Solomon is. Solomon was a man of excess. He had many wives. He, he failed to honor God throughout the whole of his life. He fell down. He was not particularly righteous. It could not have been Solomon. But then if we go back to Second Samuel chapter seven, it says, "I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and it will endure forever, and I will establish it for how long, forever." So we've got a problem there if it's Solomon because Solomon's throne is not around in any kind of earthly way. There's no place that you could go and see the seed of Solomon and experience the authority of his kingship. So it can't be Solomon. But then we read this. We read that uh, that this can't possibly be a mere man. So if it's not David and it's not Solomon, is it any man ever? Verse 7, right here in Isaiah, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God. We're going to focus this morning on that uh, name of this child, the mighty God. The increasing government and the peace will be all a kingdom. That is for this child who is named Mighty. This is no mere man. This is a God, and that God is mighty. So, this morning, as we talk about the mighty God, we've got to uh, kind of put this paradox together. The child's name. For us, as mighty God, can either be terrifying or it can be comforting. And I'm going to kind of presuppose to you this morning that whether it is terrifying or whether it is comforting depends on whether or not you are weak or whether or not you are meek. Will you follow this road with me this morning? Whether or not he, this is a terrifying name, this, this uh, mighty God is terrifying to you, or whether or not he is comforting to you will depend on whether or not you are weak or meek. Back in Genesis uh, chapter 3, sin comes into the world and the original sin is this lie. It's this false promise that you can become like God. No need to uh, be weak or reliant on God. You can actually be big You can be mighty. You can be like God. And for us today, we don't need to just look back at Genesis chapter 3 to know that that is true. For most of us, we've spent most of our life concerning ourselves with our own strength, our own might, building our own credit, building our own empire, building our own kingdom, building our own family that we might be self-sufficient that we might believe that same promise that was promised to Eve and Adam all of those years ago, that you can become like God. Really, at its essence, the original sin was just and only the desire to be mighty like God. So, so is it wrong? Is it wrong for us to want to accumulate power, to be mighty like God is mighty? Is it, is it wrong for us to uh, feel as though we have uh, strength on our own? What we really need to know and understand this morning is, is that everything inside of us, everything in our society commands us at some level, do not be weak. Don't be weak. And everything inside of ourselves goes, I don't want to be weak. But we fall into a pattern that human beings have always fallen into. And what we get out of that is an acute sense of not our mightiness, but of our insufficiency, of our weakness. So what I want for us to get out of this is for us to know and understand the self-sufficiency of a, a, a strong man or a strong woman really goes up against and finds conflict with this mighty God. If you are self-sufficient, if you are strong, if your hand is strengthened towards the world, if you accumulate power for yourself, if you make a name mighty for yourself, then you have no need of a mighty God. In fact, you are indeed offended by the idea that you would need a mighty God, and a mighty God is terrifying at very least to this kingdom that you're wanting to build, or at most it's terrifying to you because it says that something outside of you might be more powerful than you are, more mighty than you are. So this child named Mighty God can, for some of us, be a terrifying prospect. But for whom is it actually comforting? Well, it's comforting for those who are meek, Who have seen their own need and realized that uh, and recognized their own sufficiency and its insufficiency, and it's led them to a place of humility. And those are the people that, when they hear you need a mighty God, you go, "Yeah, I do." When when you hear that uh, that you face danger in this world and what you need is not to bootstrap it up, to to you know uh, be able to protect yourself, but rather that you have a mighty God with cosmic power. And for those who are meek, that is a blessed word. It's an encouraging word because you don't have to be mighty any longer. You can cast your lot with all of the might in all of the universe. This child that is given, this mighty God, it is needed and comforting. So ultimately, we as human beings need a mighty Messiah, and that mighty Messiah is actually good news because we face real dangers in this life. We do. We face real dangers. And now, I know that saying that out loud for some of us can go, no, 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 I actually have a pretty safe life. I don't face, uh, you know, kind of this prehistoric danger of lions, you know, coming and uh, devouring half of my family. Like, you're, like I, I lead a pretty secure life. But what I mean for us to talk about this morning is, is that we face real dangers, and not all of them are physical. Not all of them are physiological like health. Some of them are just plain spiritual, and this is where I think we need to really understand what it is that God is doing for his people, and so what I want to do is turn over to uh, Psalm chapter 18. We're not going to read all of it. It's a very long psalm, but uh, what this is going to help us do is understand the persecuted prince. We're going to understand uh, something about this mighty God and our meekness and how that is good news in the gospel by studying uh, David's life through studying a few of his words. Let me read. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You get some of, the, uh, some of the content of what we talked about. David is not making much of his own might. He's making much of a mighty God and he's actually professing that he is the one who is actually meek and in need of salvation. He goes on to say this, if it's not clear enough. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple he heard my voice and my cry to reach him to reached his ears Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too, what, mighty for me, verse 17 says. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, and he rewarded. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God listens in darkness. For by you, I can run against the troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me a head of nations, people whom I had not known uh, served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. For this I will praise you, O Lord among the nations and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed this this is all flowing out of and these are selected texts from Psalm 18 but you get some of the flavor here You get some of the flavor that what the psalmist was enduring was actually really serious and really dangerous. In fact, if we look back at the top of uh, uh, this chapter, we see that David writes this song and sends it off to the choir master, but he wrote it in a specific time. It was David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. Specifically, we can read from the hand of Saul. What what is it that this entire thing is about? We've got to get some of the context for us to really extract what is going on between the might of God and the meekness of David, for us to understand this persecuted prince. David is described as a man after God's own heart, but he started as the youngest son of Jesse. He started really as a nobody that God just plucked up from obscurity and uh, was glad to actually anoint. He actually sends uh, Samuel, the prophet, to anoint David as the replacement for a wicked king named Saul when he was very young. And from there, we know a lot of the rest of the story, right? We know that David uh, was there as a shepherd boy and uh, was uh, called to go into uh, the city. And then uh, saw Goliath the giant standing there a a physical representation of all that was might at the time a giant there a great warrior and David was not scared he not because he was great not because he was mighty but because his God was mighty he knew of his meekness he knew also when he looked at the giant Goliath he knew of his meekness as well and he was undeterred he was unafraid he wasn't worried about that danger. So uh, David gets sent out. Uh, the the uh, king actually tries to give him his armor, and David eschews it because he doesn't need it. And he goes out and faces the Goliath the giant with a small sling and some small stones. Why? Because his strength and might uh, was not what won the battle. In fact, his meekness was precisely what allowed God to display his might. Do we see that? Years and years ago, I had a a youth minister that used this example. If God was uh, wanting to show of all of his glory, and he came down in a moment and said, uh, I'm going to display my might and my glory by allowing for this local high school team to get utterly defeated by the Patriots, we would go, "Ah, that's It's not that great of a God, right? Like if he wants to uh, show us all of his glory by allowing one of uh, the professional NFL teams to destroy a high school football team, we wouldn't really marvel at his might, right? What he's doing with David is exactly the opposite of that. What he's doing with you is the exact opposite of that. He's actually displaying his glory in your weakness, his strength through your weakness. The story of David is is that he goes out in faith and God wins the battle. So this gave uh, David a lot of notoriety. If you had been in Israel at the time and you had seen the defeat of your enemies by a small child, you would know the name of that child, right? We would all be kind of aware of who David was. So David is there. He becomes friends with the king's son, with Saul's son. He actually plays uh, music. He becomes an instrumentalist and he uh, sings for the king. But soon that king, the wicked king, uh, starts to be suspicious and even jealous of David and David flees for his life. He lives in agony in the wilderness and in torment, and he flees his enemies who are constantly trying to kill him. But he doesn't only flee them, he also comes into conflict with them and then even spares the life of Saul on several occasions. So that's not the story that any of us would write. If, if, if the uh, weak person that was anointed king had the opportunity to kill a wicked king, all of us would write a different story than the one that God writes, but he spares Saul so that his name might be great. So I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever been in danger? Do you have any enemies? Not only in this situation does uh, God rescue his people from an unrighteous king, he's actually concerned specifically with David, this persecuted prince, living in exile. And then we see David writing all of these Psalms that express uh, contempt for his enemies. And if we can be honest, as I'm asking you this question, have you ever been in danger? If we can be honest, we go to a lot of these Psalms and we hear David talking about his enemies and we withdraw just a little bit. We're like, "Can, can God's people talk about enemies? Can we say that we actually have enemies? Can we look at our culture and actually be bold enough to say, God has enemies and his enemies are my enemies. Can we be bold enough to uh, identify people who are wicked and who oppress, who abuse, who hurt, who assault and say, those are God's enemies, therefore they are my enemies. There's something in many of us that go, no, no, Christians can't do that. That's not a part of who we are. And yet here, David is writing explicitly about his enemies, those who are persecuting him. And I think that God has something to teach us. So when I ask you, have you ever been in danger? For some of us, we know that we have. We can remember the precise moment when we were in danger. We, we have stories that include abuse and hurt, verbal assault. We know that we have these things in our past. And so for some of us, we go, I know that I have been in danger. I know what wickedness looks like. I know that I have enemies. For many of us, we go, no, I I can't think of a person who's my enemy. It's not like I have somebody at the office where it's like, that's my mortal enemy. We will fight to death one day, right? We don't have those people generally in our lives. But for all of us, we have been in danger. We do actually have enemies. The answer is yes. Satan is our enemy who persecutes us. Sin plagues our hearts. Sin is a real enemy. Selfishness, that cycle of self-centeredness that I mentioned earlier, it's an enemy. It wants to seek and destroy you. And for us to pretend as though we don't have any enemies, for us to go this life and think that it's okay for us to think that we don't have enemies, leaves us in danger. And so when I ask you, have you ever been in danger, for all of us, we have to give it up. We have to say that we were in danger in some way at some time, even if it wasn't physical and it was spiritual, we faced lots of danger all the time. And here's the good news of the gospel. Those who are weak, those who are meek need a mighty Messiah to rescue us. We need to recognize that Satan is that lion who is prowling around, looking to devour, looking to destroy. We need to recognize that and know that God's enemy is actually our enemy and that we needed a mighty Messiah to come and fight that battle for us in our meekness. That you are not strong enough to defeat Satan. The the answer is not that you could have been taken up and placed on the Temple Mount and that you would have resisted the temptation of Satan. Satan would have said, I'll give you, and before the words were out of his mouth, you would have said, yes, I'll take it. I'll take the kingdoms of earth. Give them to me. That'll make me mighty. We have an enemy, but he is defeated by the mighty Messiah. Messiah. We have sin inside of our own hearts that you cannot. You've been trying for a really long time. You've been trying, some of us, for decades to get rid of the sin in our hearts, on our own, through our might. Have you been able to do it? Of course you haven't. Why? Because you need a mighty Messiah. For some of us, the things that we loathe most about ourselves is the fact that we focus so much on ourselves. We spend a lot more time thinking about the uh, Christmas present that we want rather than loving and blessing and serving other people. We think about the way that we were hurt by our best friend more than we think about how we can turn the other cheek and love and bless someone who has cursed us. We, we, we think a lot more about the ways that we were wrong than we think about the ways that we wrong other people. We don't, we don't give the same weight, same gravity. If somebody comes in and gives us a uh, slight amount of shade, we'll consider that and think about that in and of ourselves far more than the ways that we have actually wronged and hurt other people. And what we need is someone to break that cycle of selfishness to relieve us of our sins, to actually take Satan, bind him up, and throw him into a pit in a way that we never could. We need a mighty Messiah. And here we receive these sweet words. To us a child is born. We get a son who is given. And the governments of all the world will be on his shoulders, and he'll bring peace, and he'll bring a kingdom that will expand and expand forever. This is where the story gets good. This coming king actually is a child born, but he is also a mighty God. The incarnation of Christ is not just a spiritual appearing or an immaterial manifestation. It is a real baby born in a real stable who really did come to exemplify the might of God. And the might of God becomes, in this moment, the persecuted prince. He's the one that comes and empties himself of all of the right glory that he had and was born in a stable, lived a life perfect for us, but then was not seated on a throne made of gold. He was hung on a cross made of timber with nails driven through his hands that he might become the persecuted prince on our behalf. And why did he do it but to save the persecuted princess, the church, This is how Jesus can say, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Why why can he say that? It's not because your might was deserving of all of the earth. It's because in your meekness, you needed a Savior who was able to come and get everything. Every nation on earth was put underneath his feet. There is no place in heaven on on earth that is not rightly under his rule. And you know what he does with it? He doesn't use his might to oppress and to hurt. He doesn't use it to uh, squelch out any any desires that you have. Instead, what he does is he he says, you are blessed and I'm going to give you the earth as an inheritance. That's what happens when you're meek. If you try to be mighty, you will find out that you are weak. If you know and understand your meekness, Jesus will give you himself, and then he will give you all of the kingdoms of earth as an inheritance. What a mighty God. What a mighty child this is that we worship at this time of year. So that's what I want for us to spend the next like two minutes really talking about. I want to discuss what happens when meekness, rather than weakness, meets might. When weakness meets the might of God, what you will find is, is that uh, there will be wanting. There will be gnashing of teeth. There will be judgment for sin. But when the meek meets might, G- uh, David actually shows us the way. He gives us some amount of application for us. He's not depressed by his meekness. Instead, when his meek, meekness meets the might of God, we discover that he loves God, that he cries out to God, that he relies on God, and that he worships God. I want to show you where I get each one of those very quickly. If you want to be in Psalm 18, I'm going to show you exactly where I see these things. When David the meek meets the mightiness of God, he says, I love you. Verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The rock is my God, my fortress, and my deliverer. When when David comes up against the might of God, does he recoil, does he focus on himself, or does he say, I love you, O Lord? He says, I love you. The mightiness of God causes love to be birthed out in David's heart, even in the midst of the most difficult persecution First, the meek love the strength of God. Do you love the strength of God? Do you get to say, my God is bigger than me. He's bigger than my enemies. I love him. If you do, then you can stand strong in him. Meekness, then, is trying to be strong. Weakness, rather, is where we try to be strong for ourselves and love ourselves and rely on our own strength. And then our love is very small, our strength is very small. But when we are meek, we love God, and his might becomes an ever-increasing cycle of love for us. We are strengthened in our love. Second, we cry out. If you're wondering, what do I do in order to become meek rather than weak? First, you love God. Second, you cry out. Uh, somebody who's trying to be strong in and of themselves, are they going to cry out to God? We we know the answer to this. No, they will not try to cry out to God. They will try to be strong in themselves. But verse 6, we see David say, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. The meek cry out for help. When we are in trouble, when we are in need, we must appeal to God's might. Why? Because he is mighty to save us. Weakness, then, is not like the meek. Weakness, then, is shame that we, with all of our strength, and when our strength fails, we are too embarrassed to actually cry out to God. How many of us have experienced this? We tried really hard, we gritted, we grinded, we tried to bootstrap whatever we could do, and then when we failed, rather than crying out to God, we thought, man, I'm so embarrassed. God couldn't possibly continue to love me, and so rather than switching from weakness to meekness, we decide to stay in the shame to stay in this embarrassing place where we couldn't possibly cry out to him. Some of us need to break our uh, our cycle of self-centeredness by just crying out to God. Just crying out, God, would you save me from my self-centeredness? I'm too weak to do this on my own. I've been trying to uh, be righteous. I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to be just, and I just can't do it relying on his might, his strength, rather than our own. We need to cry out to God. Third, we need to rely on him. This is kind of an uh, interesting transition that we actually see in these kind of middle verses. We see him talking a lot about he, God, he, he, he did this, he did that heralding him. He bowed the heavens, he rode, he made, he sent, he looked, he rescued, and we get to see a lot of might. But then in verse 25, we actually get to see a pivot from talking about him to us, evangelizing, heralding him to us, to seeing David just trust him. He said, you save, you light my lamp. By you, I can run against the troop. I can leap the wall. Verse 35 says this, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Okay, I I, I just read something there. I read that this meekness led to a love, led to a crying out, led to a reliance on him that ultimately results in greatness. Does anybody in this room want to be great? Do you want to do it on your own? Yes. Yes. Does anybody want to do it on their own power? You know that it doesn't work. But by being meek, we can actually become great. Your gentleness made me great. When meekness meets might, then meekness is might. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to worship, to marvel. Verse 46, the Lord lives... Blessed be my rock. You can hear him uh, just extolling the virtues of God because God was his salvation, God was his strength. Blessed be my rock, exalted be the God of my salvation who rescued me from my enemies. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and to sing your name. Here's what I want for us to do, beloved. I want for us to love God. I want for us to cry out to him. I want for us to rely on him in the midst of our weakness. And I want us to worship him. We are aimed like a laser beam here at City Church at a revival of joy-filled worship. I want you to be a worshiper. Why don't we worship? So oftentimes it's because we are trying to be mighty rather than meek. If we are a meek people, then we are a worshipful people. But here's the best part of all of this David was merely a type. David was merely a type. Jesus came and emptied himself of all of uh, his uh, divinity to come here as a servant, but Jesus is the one that exemplified love towards God. He's the one that uh, cried out to God. He didn't only cry out to him to uh, spare people who knew not what they were doing. He, he cried out to him uh, on, on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that for you. Jesus is the one who cries out. Jesus is the one who relies on God saying, take this cup from me, but whatever you will, I will do. He's the one who worships. So I want to ask you a question this morning before we head into communion. I want to ask you, are you weak or are you meek? Are you trying to be mighty and constantly discovering how weak of a person you are? Or are you meek, humbled underneath the might of God, needing to love him and to cry out to him, needing to rely on him, needing to worship him this morning? Are you meek? Or are you weak? And what we need to know is is that mighty men need a mighty Messiah. Meek men need a mighty Messiah. And in the midst of that might, we join him in his strength. I want to pray for us this morning. God and Father, this room is filled with a lot of meek people. Just the most lovely, um, unassuming, careful, loving, tender, people Lord, we are content with the mundane because we know that we find you there Uh, we are ambitious but we are only ambitious to see more glory for jesus and not fame for ourselves but fame for jesus and so we plead that you would make that a reality here but lord we we return to that old decrepit house our weakness our sin we're tempted by satan we uh, need to resist him as evil God and Father, we know uh, that that there is just this constant cycle of self-centeredness that needs to be broken in our lives. Father, I pray that in your might, you would crush Satan once and for all. I pray that you would allow for uh, uh, us to uh, become meek in your sight. And Lord, uh, that we would live for you rather than for our own sinful uh, tendencies or for self. Father, I pray that in your great grace, you would teach us what it is to be meek in your kingdom and that we would inherit it. God and Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to sing and take communion and to uh, give and to fellowship, Lord, and we pray that you would bless all of them in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.